The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, we're going to speak to Ed Vasey, Lord Vasey, the former culture minister and the chair of the Parthenon Project, about the controversy surrounding the Parthenon or Elgin marbles. I think that in and of itself... The fact that we have changed the way that we describe the marbles, the relationship between the UK, Greece and the EU is going to be a great discussion. But first, it's safe to say it's been a rough week for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. And I'm not talking about the car that crashed into the gates of Downing Street yesterday. Yeah, we'll just take his five pledges by the end of the year. Inflation came in this week much hotter than expected. So it doesn't look like we're on course to get to, to 5% anytime soon. Growth is looking pretty sluggish and the Chancellor says he'd be comfortable with a recession in the fight against inflation. We'll discuss that a bit later on in the show. NHS waiting list. We've got more than 7 million people waiting for treatment. And on stopping the boats, well, we have those migration numbers coming in at a record high. So on all five of them, it doesn't look like we're, we're getting there anytime soon. It's all adding up to a bit of a political nightmare. And our UK political reporter and man in the know, Alex Wickham, jumped into the podcast studio earlier to explain it for us. It's been a horrible week for Rishi Sunak. You know, he last weekend he was at the G7 in Japan. He was on the world stage with Biden and the rest of the European leaders. That's where he wants to be. He wants to be talking about these sort of big picture topics. He wants to be talking about getting home and delivering on his priorities for Britain. Well, that is not what has happened this week. He has been hammered on all sides with these worse than inspected inflation figures, with these you know, pretty dire uh, net migration numbers in terms of the Conservatives' manifesto pledge to get migration down. Um, and then with political scandals involving Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, and the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So he, he just can't seem to escape drama and troubles, whether it's on a policy front or whether it's on a political front. And I think, you know, r- really, there are some some real, you know, nasty, scary things in the numbers for, for, for the Prime Minister, particularly on inflation. This is his the core aim of his government to get inflation down and it is just proving very sticky and the you know mm. the longer it takes to get inflation down the longer it takes him to get on with any of the other things that he needs to fix so it is a real problem for sunak i'm going to ask you um the kind of out there question uh, rishi sunak has lost three ministers gone to scandal in just his very brief tenure and suella braverman also seems to be under a great deal of pressure How likely is it that you might see a general election in the UK actually much sooner than anticipated? I mean, the the full time scale would be something like 18 months. Could it happen faster than that if the government is in difficulty? 
I think the problem with that is, you know, the polls are not going in the right direction at the moment for the government. In maybe a little bit earlier this year, maybe March or so, the polls were narrowing. There was some promising signs for Sunak, but he's abs- he's slightly sort of hit the buffers uh, in the last month or two. And certainly these inflation figures, you know, I would say push back the chances of a, a of an election anytime soon. The the plan for Rishi Sunak all along was that inflation would come down largely due to global factors improving. You know, he was talking about get it halving inflation this year. Really, he wanted to get inflation down to two or three percent this year privately. That's what that's what he really wanted to do, and that would have allowed him to put some tax cuts out there, placate the sort of you know uh, the the swing voters who might be. Flirting with Labour or the Liberal Democrats, offer some tax cuts and try and consolidate some sort of conservative vote. Now, the problem is he can't do those tax cuts now. He has said he will, will not cut taxes until inflation is under control. And this pushes the whole time frame back. You know, he, he can't, it, with the cost of living crisis ongoing, with mortgage rates going up, he is losing votes in both directions to Labour and the Liberal Democrats, from working class people to Labour, for, to, from middle class people to the Liberal Democrats. And the only thing really that he had in his locker to, to turn that around was tax cuts. So inflation inflation being sticky mm. uh, means tax cuts deferred again surely means you would have thought an election no time soon and that pushed back as, as far as possible. On the question of immigration, is, that, is, this, is this what the government's going to reach for? Is this going to be the distraction technique and play by, by this government as they try to focus away from the dire inflation picture? Is this anything but desperation to generate headlines when they're talking about restricting the ability for students to bring their family members over? The institutions, one area of the UK that remains strong, universities, the dependency that we have on foreign payments in terms of student fees and they're tackling this. Does, what is the rationale, Alex? Is this just, is, is this a distraction technique? Well, this is the nightmare for Sunak going forward. It's, it's sort of whatever lever he pulls on whatever policy, whichever way he goes, it leaves another group of people, another group of voters upset. So if he cracks down on immigration, as you say, as a sort of distraction technique from the economic woes or the political woes, if he says, yes, we're going to target student, foreign students' families or we're going to deport more asylum seekers or we're going to flirt with leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, these sort of right-wing immigration policies, that might shore up some working-class votes. But the flip side of that is middle-class people, perhaps in the South, don't like Brexit very much, typical Tory voters, but pretty unimpressed with how the Tories have done in government, didn't like Boris Johnson, flirting with the Liberal Democrats. Well, those sort of hardline anti-immigration rhetoric is is going to push them further to the Lib Dems. And the Tories need those people's votes to, to hold their seats in the South. So it is really a nightmare. The further he lurches uh, on, on any policy issue, really, whether it's migration mm-hmm. or Brexit or strikes or um, tax cuts, whatever he does, it leaves another group of people unhappy. And this is the nightmare that he has at the moment. Is you know he's caught in this sort of pincer between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, and there's really no coherent policy platform that he can come up with that keeps both sets of voters happy. And you know certainly the exacerbating factor now is the economy not improving or inflation not improving as 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 well as quickly as as he would have hoped.
Now, to the inflation numbers that we got this week. Ugly. But Chancellor Jeremy Hunt says that if that means that the Bank of England needs to increase interest rates so much that it causes a recession in the UK, he's in favour of that. We will make sure that the government plays its part, the Bank of England plays its part, but it is not a trade-off between tackling inflation and recession. In the end, the only path to sustainable growth is to bring down inflation. So that was Chancellor Jeremy Hunt speaking to Sky News. It's a difficult message to hear, somewhat reminiscent of when Bank of England Chief Economist Hugh Pill said that Brits need to accept they're poorer, right? Because when hard truths about inflation, when are they ever easy to digest? We're joined now by Bloomberg's UK economy reporter, Tom Rees. Tom, what did you make of uh, the Chancellor's comments? Um, I think it shows just how shocking that inflation reading was uh, on Wednesday. You know, it was only a few weeks ago that Hunt was hailing the Bank of England's new forecast that was showing that there wouldn't be a recession. Um, but that, that inflation reading could change everything if the bank has to go a lot harder on interest rates. And I, I think that's where the political danger here is for uh, Sunak and, and Hunt, because there, there is a scenario that is now quite plausible that the bank has to go much harder on interest rates, maybe induce a recession, but it's just delayed that recession um, a bit further out and perhaps that falls just before mm. a general election. Well, is it just that the Sunak government are trying to show that they are in lockstep with the Bank of England, that they're not the trust administration? I mean, in some ways, um, Tom, I sort of think that the markets perhaps have moved on from that sort of stability message. But is that actually what the Chancellor and the government are trying to do, you know, show that they're a safe pair of hands? Yeah, I, th- I think he is showing that he's, he's willing to stand by the BUE, even if they have got the inflation problem a bit wrong. Um, as we saw how damaging the undermining the UK's institutions can be. But I, I think it's worth bearing in mind um, that, you know, Hunt and Sunak are probably going to come under a bit of pressure from their backbenchers um, about all this, who have been much more critical of the Bank of England's role in everything. I mean, you only have to like watch um, some committee hearings in Parliament recently, which involved some of the bank's rate setters, and they are just downright um, hostile to the bank. Um, so um, they're standing by them for now, but you know maybe maybe the language will become a bit more a bit more critical um, if if they have got this very wrong. And Tom, short of not cutting taxes, even though there's an election on the horizon, what can the government actually do to hit its number one target of halving inflation by the end of the year? Because surely that's the Bank of England's job. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's very difficult for the government, particularly in the short term. You know, it can try and boost the supply side of the economy. You know, some of those um, reforms in the budget, such as the childcare changes and, you know, trying to persuade more retirees to come back into work. You know, but these are very slow uh, moving uh, things and they, they won't really make a difference to the inflation rate in the short term. And we, we know that kind of blanket cost of living support um, for households uh, can actually make the inflation problem worse. So, I mean, other than fiscal discipline and, you know, trying to boost the supply of the economy, this is largely a battle for the Bank of England, which is maybe the reason why, he, you know, Sunak shouldn't have made it one of his key five pledges. And Tom, you've written about the migration figures this week, haven't you? Just a quarter of the uh, immigrants coming to the UK in 2022 were from the EU. Uh, and the argument in your case, in your piece, that it's, this isn't just about Brexit, is it? 
No, I, I think that, that the most interesting thing out of those uh, migration stats that I, that I, I saw was, was just how much the EU migrant um, figure has come down. It's half of what it was in um, 2019, even though, you know, you'd have to say that the COVID effects have, have probably um, gone away now. Obviously, a lot of that is to do with how much harder it is for low-skilled um, workers from the EU to arrive in, in the UK. But I think one thing I've been talking to economists about is how different the landscape is in Europe. So a decade ago, lots of Italians, uh, Portuguese, uh, Polish and Romanian workers came over to the UK because, you know, our jobs market was a lot healthier than, than it was certainly in Southern Europe. Uh, but, you know, we've seen unemployment come down a lot in uh, Southern Europe. We've, we're seeing wages rise yeah. very fast in Poland um, and Romania. So if you're a Polish worker um, and you're looking at the prospects of the Polish economy and the UK economy and comparing yes. those, you'd probably take a bet on Poland. Um, why would you uproot your life if, you know, some people like Keir Starmer think that the Polish economy could overtake um the UK's in terms of GDP per capita um, by the end of the decade. So yeah. perhaps you, you just stay at home. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's UK economy reporter, Tom Rees. So back in January, Bloomberg reported that the British Museum and the Acropolis Museum in Athens were closing in on a deal that would see the Elgin or the Parthenon marbles returned over time to Greece as part of a cultural exchange. Lord Elgin, of course, removed the marbles, which date back to the 5th century BC, back in 1801. And that began a feud that frankly has lasted more than 200 years. Well, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's ruled out amending a 1963 law that largely forbids the British Museum from disposing of its holdings, thus lending the marbles as part of a rotation agreement would be the only way around that legal hurdle. But this issue goes to wider questions over Britain's colonial past. Well, joining us now is Ed Vasey, Lord Vasey, former culture minister and chair of the Parthenon Project. Ed, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the show today. Talk us through the logistics of this cultural exchange idea. Well, uh, there are lots of different ideas floating around, but broadly speaking, George Osborne, who's the chair of the British Museum, has floated an idea. It's been well briefed to the newspapers where the British Museum would lend the Parthenon sculptures to uh, Athens, to the Acropolis Museum, uh, and they would go there on a rotating basis. So it wouldn't be the entire collection of friezes that the British Museum has. It would be a part of them. They would go for a certain period of time they would return and then another group would go out and it would be a sort of continuous cycle of uh, exhibiting the friezes in Athens. Uh, so that's one idea and that has that's uh, problematic in the sense that it would uh, require the Greeks to acknowledge uh, that the British Museum was the owner of the sculptures and that may be a step too mm. far for the Greeks. As far as the Parthenon project is concerned, we proposed a a big idea which is that the sculptures are put into a sort of trust uh, the ownership issue is part it's not addressed uh, but the trust is the manager of the sculptures that the sculptures go back to athens where they can be exhibited as one work of art which is really what lies at the heart of all this uh, and that the trust is capable of raising money for to fund scholarship and uh, uh, student scholarships and so on 
and research into uh, the Parthenon sculptures and indeed Greek civilization. Uh, so that would avoid, as it were, having to address this vexed question of ownership, but would achieve the outcome I think most right-thinking people want, which is to see the sculptures return to their rightful home. Is there not an argument after the death of Her Majesty the Queen to actually return the marbles to Greece? Well, that's an interesting point. I'm not sure the death of Her Majesty necessarily changes things. There are rumours about uh, the King's view on this matter, but I don't have any inside knowledge either way, and I've not spoken to anyone who I would regard as having uh, a view, and I suspect the King would uh, not express any public view on this at all uh, either way. Um, it would have been, you know, that moment has passed, as it were. It would have been perhaps a grand gesture to have done it um, uh, in the run of the coronation, but that might have thrown into uh, stark relief some of the other issues. For example, the Koh-i-Noor diamond became a bit of a talking point during the coronation. So mm. uh, I don't think uh, necessarily having a new monarch changes the situation. I think what changes the situation are a few things. First of all, we have a potentially a, a stable Greek government coming forward uh, Mitsotakis has, in effect, won the election. We'll see whether he goes for a second one to get an outright majority. We have a British election coming up, which whoever wins potentially will give us uh, a stable government for the next three or four years. We'll know who we're dealing with for the next three or four years. That's not completely in the bag, but that's a whole separate argument. Um, and that gives us a, an op And we have George Osborne as chairman. So we have all these kind of stars potentially aligning. And I think what has changed the debate from what it's been traditionally is it's not simply a case now of the Greeks saying, give us back our marbles. They're actually saying, let's look at a solution where both parties benefit. And that could involve, for example, important Greek artifacts that have never left Athens uh, being loaned to the British Museum for display. It could involve financial support for the redevelopment of the British Museum, in particular for their galleries, which, mm. you know, they have a huge collection of Greek sculpture which they can exhibit so there are all sorts of ideas where and i think what has moved the debate on is an acknowledgement by the greeks that it's not simply a question of saying we want what's ours back it's a question of what how can we help you if you decide that you're willing to hand them over but to go back to caroline's point does it not put pressure on when you've got the new king to strengthen relations with Commonwealth countries, does it not open a Pandora's box to losing even more British-held art artefacts? Well, that is the argument, and it depends kind of how big your Pandora's box is. There's no doubt that there are some very high-profile uh, objects in the collections of British museums, rather than just the British Museum itself, which are subject to claims from the places from where they came. But I think they are very few, uh, and obviously our museums have enormous collections. It's not as if there will be bare shelves and bare display cases if uh, one or two objects return uh, to their original yeah. homes. I think the way of dealing with that is to set up an independent committee that can assess these claims. We do that, for example, if somebody buys a work of art in this country that we think is part of our cultural heritage, we have an independent committee that can recommend uh, that the object stays in the UK. We've had an independent committee for many years now to deal with the very obvious issue of uh, art looted by the Nazis and to investigate claims to those objects. So there's no reason why you couldn't have an independent committee that could make recommendations mm. on some of these objects. But as I say, they're very few yeah. and far between. The V&A, for example, another British museum has said, 
They've had nine claims for objects in the last 20 years. They have 14.7 million objects in their collection. But it's pretty clear what the stance of the UK is. I mean, in a way, I'm not surprised to hear that there are so few claims because, you know, the answer has been such a firm no. I mean, in a way, are you sort of saying that with a new government um, and with change coming, that the the sort of cultural war that I think this, um, that the Elgin marbles, the Parthenon marbles form part of is also at the heart of the issue. And that's a kind of conservative issue. Uh, I think uh, what I'm saying is that if there is an election, well, there will be an election next year, um, that whoever wins, whether it's Conservative or Labour, at least one will know which government you're dealing with for the foreseeable future. Um, You are right. I suspect both parties have a problem with this issue. The Tories have the problem that they are now the anti-woke party and any sophisticated or thoughtful discussion about the origin of cultural objects in our country is somehow deemed as an attack on British history and unpatriotic. The Labour Party have the problem that it's very, it would be very easy for the right-wing press to um, attack them as being woke and undermining Britain's heritage and history. So it is a political problem in that sense, because unfortunately we do have a culture war uh, in this country of sorts, a kind of poor relation to the full-on American culture war that uh, some of your listeners may be enjoying in the US. Ed, I think a number of people in your party would like to to paint the Conservatives as the anti-woke force in in British politics. Do you think there are votes to be gained from that stance? No, I don't think there are votes to be gained. I don't know why they're doing it. They they have this tendency in the Tory party to kind of import uh, American political ideas. And I think it's a ludicrous way of looking at things. Um, it makes great copy for the newspapers, but most voters are concerned about uh, the level of interest rates, the state of the health service, whether their kids are getting a good education or not. Uh, I don't think it's going to move the dial on this, but it is a sort of extension of Brexit in the sense that Brexit was in, in many ways a culture war. Um, and I think it's a kind of hangover from Brexit, but I think it's a mistake. I think it's unhelpful. Uh, And I think one can be much more grown up in one's approach about these issues. We've just been talking about what a hell of a week it's been for Rishi Sunak across his five priorities. But you've been pretty generous with your praise for him. Do you think he has much chance of winning the next election? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a bit of an outlier here because most people are priced in a Uh, a Labour victory. I suspect there may be a hung parliament, and it may even be that if there's a hung parliament, the Conservatives might be the largest party. But I do think that, um, and I say this as much as I can be a political commentator, I'm obviously biased in one way because I am a Conservative peer and was a Conservative MP, but I don't think Keir Starmer has sealed the deal with the electorate in the way that Tony Blair had sealed the deal with the electorate. Uh, I don't think people know who he is or really uh, think he's got a very clear programme. And I think Rishi Sunak, and I may be completely naive about this, but this is my instinct, is is in terms of kind of his energy, his palpable commitment to working hard and coming up with pragmatic solutions, Hmm. um, is beginning to kind of make up ground. So I do think there is, to a certain extent, everything to play for. I think that's such an interesting observation. Um, the thing is, there is, you know, you talk about things being priced in, very much our audience's um, interest. Uh, there is a lot of attention being paid. You know, we spoke to the Shadow Chancellor, for example, um, just this week, Rachel Reeves. 
There is also a great deal of criticism from business, um, both kind of domestic but also international, that Britain is kind of adrift, that there isn't a clear path or plan for the future, that although, as you say, Rishi Sunak is you know, shouldn't be counted out, that actually it's lots of announcements and very, very little delivery, that they're in a very difficult spot. And business are really crying out for something that is deliverable. Can they come up with something? They can't come up with tax cuts particularly. Can they do enough to compensate for the economic consequences of Brexit? I don't think anything can compensate for the economic consequences of Brexit, but at least the Windsor framework was... uh, a small crack of light at the end of the tunnel, by which I mean at least we had a government that was prepared to negotiate in a sensible way with the European Union and come up with a solution that was practical. You know, I remember after Brexit meeting the then Swiss ambassador and he said to me, welcome to Switzerland, because his point was that Switzerland spends its life negotiating individual deals with the European Union. And what we need to see from the government is a a very pragmatic approach, having completely upended the British economy by cutting us off from our next door, the largest free trade zone in the world, which happened to be geographically next door to us, uh, we've got to try and row some of that back. I completely understand why people think the government is adrift and it's all slightly um, scattergun. Uh, And I think there is an element of, you know, the end of the term of an administration, even though we've had, you know, three or four administrations for the price of one. Um, one would hope that once an election had settled the political landscape, uh, that we could then get on with trying to undo some of the extraordinary damage that Brexit has done. I'm not saying that we should rejoin the European Union, by the way, because that's always what people try and characterise that point as. And the only saving grace for Britain at the moment is that whoever wins the next election will at least be a sensible politician uh, who's not going to indulge in pointless grandstanding and rhetoric. You say Keir Starmer hasn't sealed a deal with the electorate, the, the next election. Is the biggest danger for the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party itself? Uh, you, you write in the Observer this week about the party being at war with, at war with itself. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more uh, enjoyable and lovely and fun than to take chunks out of your own side. Um, it kind of it's a great way of avoiding hard work, and it's extraordinarily entertaining. But it gets you absolutely nowhere. Uh, the electorate is not interested in a sophisticated discussion about the future of conservatism. Uh, all they see is a divided party. And if they see a divided party, they think, how are these guys going to run the country? So if anyone had the Conservative Party and therefore, in theory, the country's interests at heart, they would get behind Rishi Sunak 100% and let him get on with doing the job as prime minister. Sorry to trot out a political cliche there. Um, <laughs> and these internal culture wars are ludicrous and stunningly unhelpful okay um so then if those I'm sorry to sit on the fence on that issue no look what about the migration <laughs> numbers then this week i mean you're a Cameron conservative um the pledge to bring down um immigration i mean just again there is such a divide in the country and also in the party about what to do about migration the needs of the economy it's kind of a disastrous again on the kind of how to handle migration Yeah, and I think with immigration, the Tory party has painted itself into the same corner as it painted itself over the European Union. You know, we knew, uh, people who worked in government knew what what massive benefits one got from being a member of the European Union, but the the easy politics was to slag it off at every opportunity. Similarly with immigration, even David Cameron indulged in this, saying that we would get immigration to below 100,000. 
We've never, ever had politicians who explain why immigration is a good thing uh, for any kind of developed Western economy. You know, we are an aging society. We need uh, people who uh, are happy to come here to work, work in public sector jobs that we need, but also work in business um, and create jobs here in the UK. Uh, of course, we have to have controls on immigration. Nobody is saying that one should have a simply open door policy, but we've painted ourselves into a corner where a million immigrants looks like an appalling figure. But of course, that figure is made up, for example, with 100,000 people coming from Hong Kong. Nobody, public opinion, did not object to uh, Hong Kong citizens with British passports coming here. It's 120,000 Ukrainian refugees, many of whom will go back. And of course, vast numbers of them are students who contribute massively uh, to our economy by paying student fees and also tend to go home, have successful careers and have a residual love of Britain to go with it. And Lord Vasey, as a former culture minister, there's a very serious question I have to ask you. Are you a fan of Jilly Cooper? Do you know, you're the first to ask me that. She's on my shelf, <laughs> but I've never read... i tell you what, but, but I have Has got, the Prime has Minister, the Prime minister read, read Riders? <laughs> I know. Well, I'm going to, it's on my to-do list because I've got Cleo Watson's book, Whips, which I'm very oh. excited by. <laughs> As someone who loves horse riding myself, maybe I'll have to dust off a copy. <laughs> uh, yeah, p- perhaps. I wonder whether, though, the Prime Minister is winning votes with that reference as he did make it on the ITV sofa this week or not. <laughs> All right, Ed Vasey, Lord Vasey, former Culture Minister and Chair of the Parthenon Project. Brilliant to have you on. Thank you very much. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more next week. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.